We're going to dive in. We've been going through 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3. And we're in a section of Peter that if you just at first glance look at it, it seems a bit tangled and complicated. But it's like one of those yarn knots that if you just pull on the right thread, the whole thing comes apart. So I'm going to try to pull on the right thread and show that there is a theme to this. And I think it's really, really good. All right. And so I'm going to give you the outline to begin and then we'll work through it. So here is the outline for 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. It's number one. It's going to be a battle when you walk your faith. Peter's warning us of that. If you're going to really walk this thing out, get ready for a battle. Number two, when you walk it, or walk it, excuse me, before you talk it. Number three, when you talk it, the topic is Jesus. So I think if you grab that outline and as we read through this, you'll see that's the goal that Peter is trying to get at. And it's a brilliant, incredible goal. So verse eight, finally, He's only halfway through his book. He's like a preacher. All right, finally. And then there's 15 more minutes. It's Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life. Anyone desire to love life? You're like, no, I'd rather hate life. Or see good days. No, thanks. I'll take bad days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's gonna be a battle when you walk your faith. So in verse eight, Peter here, he's been talking to husbands and wives, and we did that the last two Sundays I was here. Now he broadens, he says, all of you. So this is not just for husbands, and this is not just for wives. This is for singles, and young, and old, and divorced, and widowed, and it's for everyone. Here's what you're supposed to be. And he gives this list of qualities that should mark our lives. Number one, unity of mind. What does this mean? Well, since he has just talked about marriage, I'll use that. Those that are married in here, have you ever disagreed with your spouse? My wife and I, we've had disagreements. You can pray for her. She is growing and learning, and she'll see the light. <laughs> but no matter our disagreement, here's the thing. We realize we're still on the same team. And our relationship is much more important than the issue. And because the relationship 
is far more important than the issue, we don't let it divide us. That's unity of mind. It doesn't mean you agree on everything, it's you get things in the right perspective. And you realize people and relationships trump issues. And we need to have a lot more of that in our world, that relationships with people are far more important than an issue that we think is the thing to talk about, unity of mind. Number two, sympathy. Put it simply, it's this. Sympathy is the ability to see things from another person's perspective. Oh, I see why you might see it that way. That's sympathy. The key to sympathy is one thing, listening. Yeah, you laugh because nobody listens anymore. You go to college and you get a degree in communication. You do not get a degree in listening. In high school, you took a speech class, not a hearing class, because it's all about making your point, right? Debate, it's make your point. So we're terrible at listening. But the Bible says this, be slow to speak, be quick to listen, and be slow to wrath. People that are slow to speak and quick to listen very often are slow to wrath. It's when we are quick to speak and slow to listen that we get all upset and mad because we don't have sympathy. We're not seeing something from someone else's perspective. Sympathy. Number three, brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. It's real simple. It's like people. Like you should like people. And I've said this before. When the mountains that you see out here are eroded by the wind and the rain and they're flat, the person sitting next to you will still exist because they are eternal. So if you're gonna invest in something, invest in people, like people. Be tenderhearted. The Greek there is actually your guts. And what's amazing to me is this. The, the, the Bible talks about the guts being the seed of something. And what we found is this, what scientists found is this, is that you have a second brain. Did you know that? You got your big brain up here, but the second massive accumulation of neurons in one spot is right in your guts. It's why when you have an emotional time, somebody breaks up with you or there's something bad happens, where do you hurt? You don't hurt up here, do you? You hurt in your gut. And there's actually a feedback loop that science is finding between your big brain and your gut brain. And it's saying, what the Bible is saying is right here is be tender in those emotional areas. Be tender. Like the worst kind of person is hard-hearted, right? Like no matter what you do for them, you cannot help them. You're like, I just wanna help the situation, but I can't seem to help the situation. What do I do? And they're like, the one thing you can do is die. That's it. Well, I'm not doing that. So it's impossible. You and I are to be tender like our heavenly father, who even when we blow it, says to us as prodigals, come into the house, feast with me. You're invited back in, be tenderhearted. And then lastly, humble minds. A humble mind is a mind that says, today I could learn something. And so I'm gonna go about my day in humility looking for something to learn. It's the exact opposite of cable news networks. It's the opposite of talk radio. It's, hey, I could learn somebody from somebody else, something from somebody else, right? So I'm going to do that today. We are to be the anti-cable news networks. We are to be the anti-talk radio. I am going to learn something today. And then Peter gets hard. 
He says, when you're living that kind of way, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, isn't it the norm if somebody mistreats you to mistreat them? Isn't that the norm? Right? Peter says, no, don't be normal. So what does that mean, Matt? My neighbor keeps throwing his dog poop over my fence. What am I supposed to do? Bake him a pie? I'll do that if it's a dog poop pie. No problem. Or you put something on social media and you get all these bad comments. What am I supposed to say to them? Thank you for your constructive criticism. I really like that. I appreciate that. I can see that you really care for me and you want to straighten me out. Thank you. Right? This is not normal. This is not what we do. It's going to be a battle. And so Peter can almost feel that. He can feel that he's asking us to live in an inverted weird life. And so immediately after he says that, he's like, okay, time out. Listen carefully. Do you want to obtain a blessing? Well, yes. Do you want to love life? Yeah. Do you want to see good days? Sure. Do you want the ears of God to be open to your prayers and his eyes to be upon you? Sure. Then you cannot be normal. You can't be normal. You have to be something else and it will be a battle. But it makes sense, doesn't it? If you live unnormal, there's gonna be a better thing happening for you. So at Edgewater, we have this saying that I've been using a bunch now. Whenever you come to a hot situation when there's sparks between people, everybody has two buckets. One bucket is full of gasoline and the other bucket is full of water. And you have a choice in that moment when it's hot and sparking, what am I gonna throw on the fire? Right? So if you choose to throw gasoline on with your words, with your actions, you repay evil for evil, what happens to that fire? It gets worse. Because retaliation always leads to escalation. If you have kids, you already know this, right? I have brilliant, awesome kids. I love them. But they have their moments. And there'll be time to time, one of my children will be crying. And I'll go to that child and I'll say, why are you crying? And she'll say, because she hit me. I'll go find the hitter. And then I'll ask the hitter, why did you hit your sister? I know the next two words. What are they? Because she, right? Retaliation. I'm just waiting for one of my kids to say, because I'm a sinner and that's what sinners do. I'm like, free car for you. Love you. You got it figured out. It gets worse and worse and worse. That's what happens. Retaliation leads to escalation. So here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, don't. Don't. Like we live in a world now where it's about fighting and there's no civility and it's assumed the worst about people and it's cancel people and it's eye for eye and tooth for tooth and we're all blind needing dentures now. And Peter's like, there's a better way. Don't do that. Don't be normal. Don't be normal. During the, one of the most divided times in our country, 160 years ago, it's called the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was the president and after the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was kind to the enemy. 
And he was criticized by his critics who said, you should be crushing the enemy. That's what you have to do. And this was his response. This was his quote. It's so good. He said this, am I not destroying, destroying my enemies by making them my friends? Are we willing to do that kind of stuff? Not repaying evil for evil, taking one for the team, not retaliating, living an inverted upside down life. Because that's what's being asked. And it's a battle. It is a battle. So number one, it's a battle if you're gonna live your faith. Number two, walk it before you talk it. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are jealous, zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Walk it before you talk it. So Peter says this, some of you are going to do everything right. You're going to be unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-hearted, humble minds, not repaying evil for evil, not reviling for, for reviling, blessing. And in spite of all that, you're going to get blasted. And he knew what he was talking about. Because right after this letter is penned, Nero comes on the scene and does exactly this. And I think we're facing... Similar times, right? Christianity, newsflash. In America, Christianity is out. Do you know that now? So perhaps you saw the video. I think it came out on Monday or Tuesday. But it was in Washington, D.C. of a group of white Black Lives Matter people who were confronting diners outside and having them raise a fist. And this one lady would not raise a fist. Did you see that? And the Response was, what, are you a Christian or something? I went, whoa, whoa, why that? Why that? Interesting. Peter says, when you're slandered, not if you're slandered, expect it. Expect it, because it's coming. And you need to trust Jesus in those moments. Well, Matt, I just trust our political system. <laughs> okay. We'll see how that's going to work for you, right? I'm just trusting that things are getting better. The economy is going to be a V, and we're just going to come out of this. All right. Keep spending like the rapture then. Go right ahead, right? Look out. Things are changing right now, and Peter is warning us, and I think he's correct. If you don't believe me, today go on your social media and on your social media, just post something that for 2,000 years has been right inside of Orthodox Christianity. Post on there, you know what? I think marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's it. See the love you get. 
See if it's, ah, oh, yeah, applause, or slander, or evil, or reviling. Or post, you know what? I think Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's it, there's no other way. See what kind of applause you get. Or, you know what? I just think there's two genders. In the beginning, God made them male and female, and that's it. See what kind of applause you get. And for 2,000 years, that's the norm. These are not like, okay, edgy parts of Christianity. This is the center. And our culture is no longer accepting them. And if I am worried, if I'm worried that because of what I believe, I'll be canceled, whatever that means, cancel me, I could care less, or pressured, or shamed, then I'll deny. I'll deny what I know to be true. Well, Matt, what do we do in this time? It's real simple. Peter says it. Walk it before you talk it. That's why he begins this, verse 13. Make sure you're doing good. Make sure you're doing what's right. Because what is the number one accusation that people outside the church have of those inside the church? The church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, right? Whenever someone says that to me, I say, you're right, and there's room for one more. Come on in, bro. Everyone's a hypocrite. Come on. No one does everything they say they're going to do. Give me a break. That's the accusation. And so because of that, then you and I have to be really careful. We've got to make sure we walk it before we talk it, that we're doing good, that we have a good conscience, that you know I did this not to be inflammatory, not to be accusatory. I did this because this is true right? And then, and only then, does it say give an answer. If you read the context of giving an answer here, it's in the midst of living a life of humility and unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and not reviling and not doing evil, and you're being mistreated for that, and in that moment, you give your answer. That's actually the context to the answer you're supposed to give. When you're living a life that is in stark contrast to the world and people are mad at you for it, that's when you get to give your answer. Because ultimately, here's the thing. The test of every philosophy is, does it actually work when it's hard? Does it give you what you need when life is dark? That's the test. It's your marriage. For those that would slander you say, man, your marriage is good. You guys look like you actually like each other. Your wife doesn't hate you. What, what, what's your secret? Then you give verse 15, an answer for the hope that's inside of you. Your kids are really good. Like, I'd love to trade you. Can we trade kids? What's your secret? And you give verse 15. Or your marriage was terrible and your kids were a complete wreck and now they're not. What happened? And then you give verse 15, an answer, right? It's you walk it before you talk it. That is the key. And when you talk it, the topic is Jesus. Look at verse 18. And this is what Peter does over and over in his book. It's always Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. When you talk, the topic is Jesus. Because Jesus lived an inverted life. He was reviled, didn't revile back. He suffered, he didn't make people suffer. He lived an inverted life. He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He said, if you wanna be great in the kingdom, be a servant. He said, when you go into a place, take the worst seat, not the best seat. He said, when someone punches you on one cheek, what are you to do? Get your AR-15. No, turn the other cheek. That's a radical, inverted life. Jesus is the opposite of Instagram. That's what I think. Whatever Instagram is promoting, Jesus is the opposite of it, okay? And you've got this little section here, verses 19 and 20, which is an enigma. Let me read it again to you. It says this, that he went, proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This is an enigma of a text. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, incredible theologian, he says this about this little text. He says this, a wonderful text this is. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Confusing. There are three big ideas of what this is about. I'll give you them. Number one, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, number one, Jesus goes down to the holding place for the dead souls and preaches salvation to them. That's option number one. Option number two, Jesus, through Noah, his spirit through Noah, proclaims the good news to the disobedient people that populated earth right before the flood. Option number two. Option number three, Jesus, goes between the cross and resurrection to a holding place for disobedient spirits. And these are the Genesis 6, if you know this text, when the sons of God came to the daughters of Eve and produced a race of renowned mighty warriors. You can read that, it's crazy. They're called the Benai Elohim. They're not, no one's sure what they are. Are they human or not? Are they disobedient angels? What are they? There's something, and those crew, Jude tells us, are put into a very deep, deep place where they're held. It could be Jesus goes and preaches to them. Those are your three options. I lean towards number three. But regardless, regardless of what you believe, here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, Jesus preached to the worst of the worst of the worst. When he was reviled, 
didn't revile back. When he suffered, it didn't cause suffering back. When he lived a beautiful life, he didn't, he didn't give up on the worst of the worst of the worst. He gave an answer even to them. It's supposed to tell you and me, never give up. Never give up on the worst of the worst around you. Your neighbor, your coworker, your son, your daughter, your brother, your, doesn't matter. No one is too far from the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the point. And we keep giving answers to them. We keep walking out our faith because no one's too far from his grace. And God is really into seeing people saved. He gave his life for it. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to salvation. And so we keep doing this. That's what we're supposed to do, right? And a side note on this is this. Noah obeys God. And because of Noah's obedience to God, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, eight people are saved in a wicked, terrible time. Because one dad obeyed God and did what he was supposed to do. We can debate all day long in our country how many policemen we need, how many prisons we need, we can debate that over and over and over again. I would say this, if dads did what they were supposed to do, we'd need a lot fewer prisons and a lot fewer policemen. If dads what they're, did they're supposed to do. Now, <clears throat> both of my brothers, my little brother and my older brother, spent considerable time incarcerated. Why? Because we had a delinquent dad. And if you look at the one thing that connects people in prison, it's fatherlessness. If dads did what dads were supposed to do, if we live lives that were unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we blessed instead, we'd see a lot fewer needs for the system we have right now. I know that 100%. That's what Noah did, and he saved his family. Dads, do what you're supposed to be doing. Do what you're supposed to do. And then we get one of the most incredible verses in the Bible. It's verse 18. I think it is the most succinct declaration of the work of Jesus in the entire Bible. Listen to it again, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. One and done. On the cross, Jesus declared what? It has begun. Got a good whole shot here? Man, that's a great start. No, it is finished. Romans 8, 3 says this. What the law could not do because of my weakness, God has done. It's done. That your sins, all of them, past, present, future, have been paid for by the work of Christ on the cross. All of them. And all of our laws that we put, I'll be better next week, God. I'll promise to be this way. All those are just worthless. Why? Because Jesus has already done it. One and done. You are forgiven. Though your sins were like scarlet, they've been made white as snow. Once for sins. Number two, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, God in the flesh, perfect, spotless, sinless, died 
to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And there is this lie right now that Satan tries to put in people's heads. You're unworthy. You should never go to Jesus. You should not be in church. Forget it. Get away from there. And that lie is to keep you from his grace and from his mercy. And it works so good, but it's so wrong. It'd be like this. It'd be like doctors saying to sick people, you know what? You're too sick for me. Get a little healthier and then come into the hospital. Or a mechanic who's like, you know, your car is just not running good enough. Get it running a little bit better and then bring it in and then I'll charge you a lot of money to fix it, okay? You'd be like, that's insane. It's the same thing. Jesus Christ came for the worst of the worst. He came for you and me. Look around right now. Look around at all the sinners. The one sitting right next to you. All of us saved by him, brought into the same body. Look around, right? You realize God's, God has really low standards is what you realize. And I'm so thankful for that. Praise his name. He did not save Matt Heverly because he's like, man, I really need him on my team. He's an all-American. We need him. No, God saved me because I need him. And his grace and love is so great that it pursues even the worst of the worst, which I am. And here's the good news. All of that is so that we are brought to God. Big picture. Big story of the Bible is this. God creates a beautiful space for humans where we get to be in his presence. We have that privilege. We trash the joint and we're evicted. But every human heart wants back to that spot. And we all try to search different ways to get back into God's presence. Whatever we want to call it, whatever that angst is in us, we all want back there. I want to get back there. We may not even know that we want that, but it's what we want. Okay? So here's the good news. God meets us in our brokenness, meets us in our, in our miserableness, and, and he brings us to him. And we are now able to go into his presence. And you better get this right. Why are you allowed into God's presence? I'll give you an illustration. Here's why. So many years ago, 2007, I remember it because that was the year Elijah was born. We had this Saturday in August where we had three weddings and my wife was pregnant, like 15 months pregnant, like bang pregnant, right? So we had three weddings to go to. So we get to the first wedding and we're there early, but we end up getting into the wedding late because you just don't move fast when you're pregnant. You might leave the baby behind. So everything is slow, right? 10 minutes out of the car, 10 minutes to walk 15 feet, take a break, 10 minutes to walk 15 more feet. So we get in there, it's hot August, and there's no chairs in the shade. And I'm like, oh man, this is not gonna be good. This guy sees my wife. He's like, oh, do you want a seat in the shade? She said, yes, thank you. She sits down. There's only one chair though. He looks at me. Do you want a chair? I said, sure, I love a chair. He went somewhere, found a chair. I had a seat in the shade. I'm like, this is awesome, right? Go to the second wedding. Get the third wedding late. We're there late. The wedding's already happened. We're there for the reception, for the dinner. And so we get there, and my wife is hungry. And when pregnant ladies are hungry, what do you do? You feed them, man. I would have like a hamburger underneath my hat. Be like, here you go. Because you do not want an angry pregnant woman. So I'm like, oh, no. We get there, and it's a 200-person long line for food. I'm like, oh, no. This could get really bad. Well, the chef happens to walk by us as we're walking in. He looked at my wife and says, you look hungry. 
I'm like, really? She looks full to me. What are you talking about? Right? Do you want some food? She's like, please, I'd love some food. So he's about ready to walk away. He looks at me, you want some food too? I'm like, yeah, I'll have the tri-tip, the halibut, and a chef's salad. Thank you very much. So they went and got food, brought it back to us, and we're just eating. 200 people are looking at us like, what in the world? How'd you do that? I don't know. Right? We just finished our food when the owner of the house, it was at a guy's house, he walks by, says, you guys want dessert? I'm like, oh yeah, we want dessert. Now, why did I get all that blessing? Because of who I was with. That's why. Listen, listen. You come boldly into the throne room of grace because of who you are with. It's not, I better look at myself. I better figure out how good I am. I better make sure that I'm all cleaned up and everything's great. God doesn't care about that. He says, oh, you're with my son? Come on in. The reason you and I come boldly into the throne room of grace is one thing, because we are with the son. That's why. That Jesus, God in the flesh, becomes a babe in Bethlehem. He lives the only real human life that it has ever been lived, full of sympathy and unity of mind and brotherly love and tender heart and humility and not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but blessing dies on the cross for my sin, for your sin. Three days later, he resurrects to give you and me a life of abundance and one day he's coming back to fulfill the kingdom and to finally banish and defeat death. And that's the message that we talk about. That's it. The topic is Jesus. The topic is Jesus. And what happens is this. We're being distracted right now. And there's all these other topics. And we gotta get back to Jesus. Well, Matt, what about race? Oh, race is so important. Galatians 3.28, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Greek, they all need Jesus. But vaccines, Matt, what about vaccines? You gotta talk about vaccines. Yeah, we're all gonna die and we all need Jesus. So totally, we need Jesus. Well, what about rich and poor? Yeah, they both need Jesus. What about genders? Yep, both need Jesus. The topic is Jesus. That's what we talk about. This is what Peter says. He says, yeah, this stuff is gonna happen to you, no doubt. Make sure... Make sure when you're walking it, that when you start talking, the topic is Jesus because that's what people need. I've said this many times. Jesus is the deep end. Everything else is the kiddie pool. And adults playing in kiddie pools, get the police called on them because it's weird. <laughs> Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. It's why every, every Sunday we end with communion because what we're saying in this moment is this. We're saying topic is Jesus. The topic is Jesus. That we bring our brokenness and we bring our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And he brings us into God's presence, which is ultimately what we need. And so Jesus, today as we take your brokenness, We receive your righteousness, the just for the unjust. That the only thing that we contribute to salvation is our sins. Oh, remind us of that. May we be humble in mind. 
and you give us your mind and you give us your righteousness and you give us the right to come in to the throne room of grace. May we remember that today. As we partake in you, may you, par may you take part of us and transform it even this day so that we can live lives with unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tender-heartedness and humble minds. Let's take and eat together. drink the cup of forgiveness. And for any in here that feel unworthy, maybe because of events this past year, this past month, or last night, I pray that they would know that when you died on the cross 2,000 years ago, all of their sins were in the present. And you died once for sins. And that as we drink this cup today, we can not only know we're forgiven, but we can be cleansed from that unrighteousness, transformed, changed. And that's what we want. So may you cleanse us and transform us, we pray. Let's drink together. Amen.